right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tim Moen Show. This is my first live broadcast. I'm testing out the technology. I don't know if it's going to work or not, um, but if you have any questions during this show, please drop them in the comment box, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube or Rumble. We're simulcasting three different places. At least I hope that's what's happening. And um, if you're on any of those platforms, you can feel free to drop your comments. Let me know you're here. Let me know if you have any questions. Let me know if you uh, you have any anything positive to say about your day. It's my wife's birthday today, so that was fantastic. We celebrated her birthday, had a, had a nice time. I talked about all the lessons we've learned over the past year. What have we learned? You know, theory, we're aging. We should be getting wiser as we age. Um, it took me a little while to think of something I learned over the last year. I feel like I'm getting dumber as I get older, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm losing. Uh, I'm, I'm doing the opposite of learning, but... Uh, no, I, I, I came up with a few things. Uh, for example, one of the things I, I came up with was uh, I learned, really learned the value of fraternity, of brotherhood this year. I started a men's group and that men's group has led to this podcast. It's led to uh, a bunch of things, positive things in my life. And, um, you, you know, you, you take guys for granted. Uh, you, you just kind of assume a person's a person. I've got my wife. She's my best friend. I, I confide in her everything. But there's something to be said about having a band of brothers, having that masculine point of view. So that's something I learned this past year for sure. And it's been a positive to me. All right. Uh, we are going to be talking about chaining government down today. Uh, the thumbnail I used, if you noticed, was of uh, Odysseus. You remember from Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus was traveling. He was he was told by the gods to stay away from the island or the rocks where there were sirens. There, there's be beautiful women with their with their uh, attractive call. It was irresistible to people. It was irresistible temptation, and uh, the, the, they would lure you in with all these promises of we just want you to bask in our beauty and we just want to shower you with love. But of course, what they really wanted was you to die. And so Odysseus's big plan was, I, I'm going to see these these sirens, but I'm going to get you uh, sailors to put wax in your ears so you can't hear anything. And me, I want to hear their song, so I need you to chain me to the mast. Chain me to the mast so that I can't uh, do anything and I can't be tempted by their their siren song. So uh, So that's exactly what they did, and it worked. And this is a perfect analogy of what we want to do with government, because you step into that role of government, you're the leader of the, whether it's a prime minister or president, leader of your nation, the head of state, um, you have all these siren calls out there calling to you, asking you to, uh, promising you all your greatest desires will come true if you follow me. And even if you go in there with good intentions, and you want to say, cure poverty, clean up drug addiction, fix crime, have all these grand ideas, you're lured in but to the rocks by these sirens who end up being your demise. And, and that's what happens with government all the time. And so one of the ways we chain government down, one of the ways we lash it to that mast is with a constitution, a solid constitution as well. Canada's constitution has been pretty piss poor. Uh, and especially the last three years have demonstrated that in spades. Uh, my, my next, uh, my guest today, Brenton Froelich will tell you that it's been more like three decades. I might argue it's actually been maybe closer to hundred to 150 years. We can talk about that a little bit more. Uh, but welcome my guest, Brenton Froelich. Brenton, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks uh, for having me on, Tim. I appreciate it a lot. Now, Brenton, before we get into your efforts to chain the government down to um, to, to try to uh, you know relook at the Constitution and start the start the discussion at least, um, I want to I want to know more about you. What's wh where where do you live? What's your background? How did you get involved in this project? Well, I, I live in Peachland. Um, I was actually born in Alberta in. 1965, my parents sold the farm in Troshu and moved to Kelowna uh, when I was a year old. And so I've, I've lived in the Okanagan almost my entire life. And most of those years have been right here in Peachland, which is a, 
a heck of a well, nice place to live. It, it is a heck of a nice place to live. Brenton, mm -hmm. I, I actually worked down in that area for a summer. I was Fred Flintstone for a <laughs> summer down there. I worked for Fred Flintstone. I worked for Little Caesars and I did a construction job. I did. I held down three jobs. My girlfriend lived down there at the nice. time. And uh, yeah, loved it. It's God's country down there. It's beautiful. I, everyone mm -hmm. wants to move there. Yeah, so I grew up in Peachland. I, um, I've, I've mostly been involved in various business ventures over my life. Uh, I've, I've worked at different jobs as well, but um, I've worked in, uh, you know, pretty much every resource industry except commercial fishing and um, even spent some time in the oil patch up in Fort Mac, like many, oh, many yeah. uh, people in Western Canada. Um, yeah, just I've had a varied background. I've, I've always been a a, uh, a a very curious person. I, I didn't go to university and get a degree or anything, but I, I've been an armchair academic over a, a number of subject areas, whether it's, uh, you know, geology or forestry or, um, you know, business in general, economics, um, politics, of course. I grew up in a very political household. My grandfather on my mom's side was a member of parliament, I uh, was elected six times to the House of Commons, uh, representing the Caribou riding oh, wow, okay. of British Columbia. That's back a pretty the, conservative riding, I'm guessing. Very conservative. It was rural. It was uh, back yeah. in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he he was part of the social credit movement of Western Canada. And, okay. Uh, yeah, so he, he was very involved in politics. And in fact, my copy of the Canadian Constitution and selected statutes is is his copy, which mm. I, I, I treasure with fondness. But I grew up in a household that was politically aware. Politics was uh, talked about, like, I think every day at the table. Is that right? For one reason or another. Yeah. And, Did you guys uh, have a lot of debates, or was it mostly kind of agreeing with each other? Uh, I think in, you know, just as a kid, I, rem I remember just listening and absorbing, right? right. I, I remember going with my dad just even as a little kid to uh, – uh, the, the the coronation of of uh, Wacky Bennett at one, when he got elected during one of his terms as Premier of British Columbia. I remember being there with my dad when I was small. But right. as I got older, um, of course, there was a lot of political debate, and uh, you know you you tend to you know pick up a lot from what your parents are putting down. But as you get older, you're like, yeah, you know what? I think I'm I'm going to cut the cloth a little bit different, but. Um, Definitely, I grew up in a household that valued hard work and uh, family. And, uh, you know, that I grew up with a, a worldview that government was not there to take care of me. Mm. Um, that I, um, I, I never had a viewpoint that I, I ever have looked to government for anything in my life. Right. Um, that's not what, that's not the viewpoint that I've had. It's been a very conservative viewpoint from that yeah. perspective. Or and, and would you say your your um, I guess your your perspective or your views on on politics or government and its role in society has changed at all uh, since you were a kid, kind of listening in all those conversations, kind of going along with the culture in your household. I mean, that's kind of what mine was, right? It was like I I just kind of went along with what my dad was saying. It made sense to me and. Um, you know, later on in life, I kind of did a bit more reading and kind of formed my own views. But what, where, where, how, how is your, I, I guess I'm looking for your political evolution or where you were to where you're at kind of thing. And what, well, you know, you I, I grew up in a, at a time in history where when you went to school, you, um, you sang Oh Canada every morning. Right. You said the Lord's Prayer. You had a Bible reading. And uh, and then you you went to school and the picture of the queen was front and center in the classroom and right. so I grew up in a in, with a worldview that um, you know uh, the monarchy was very important to Canada and uh, you know from being educated just in the public school system uh, you know I got a pretty good understanding of how the parliamentary system governed Canada and that um, and I grew up with the belief that. You know, generally speaking, government was there to represent the good interests of the people of Canada. Now, when I was a teenager, um, the, um, the there was a real movement to create the Republic of Western Canada back in the 80s. Mm. I still have a baseball cap that has Sorry. that on it. Wow. Um, so there was quite a push for that. And, I'm, and of course, my dad, he was... 
And what was the yeah. push for for it at the time, Brent? Was it the National Energy Program? It was Trudeau's? the national. Yeah. It was the National Energy Program. Yeah, and so um, you know, my you know being in a household that was quite adamantly against that kind of interference by the federal government, um, you know, it was like okay, well, that could be kind of interesting. But as a young man, you don't really know what that looks like. Um, right. I became quite enamored by the by the by the Reform Party and the movement with Preston Manning. Yeah, and uh, I thought, well, you know, he's this is this is a patriot. Uh, he's a, he's our man, and and uh, you know, a triple elected Senate, and we want the West wants in, and all of those great catchy buzzwords. And <clears throat> you know, as election after election happened, I became more and more disillusioned with. Mm. The fact that you know something's wrong with the system like the election's over by the time you know we even get to go to the polls right and uh you know and just the the i i had a began to have a growing frustration with left versus right hmm. um, because i could see you know i could see corruptness on both sides of that aisle and uh you know you watch people get into power and it's like well you're really not doing a whole lot different than the other guy, except, you know, you might say that you're, you know, you're not going to take our guns away as quickly as the other guy. Um, but I became quite disillusioned with that. And I started to dive into probably, well, probably 15 years ago, I started to really look at uh, political um, systems and constitutions around the world. Um, you know, Obviously, in America, different state constitutions, uh, Europe, uh, Switzerland was very fascinating how they've uh, kind of created an interesting government system in Switzerland. And mm -hmm. so I started thinking about a lot of the super big picture things, like how to solve a problem that no one else thinks can be solved. Right. And I, I kind of enjoy spending time thinking about that. And I'm an avid reader. I love history. So um I specifically have read a lot of a lot of uh, people that you would consider to be from the Enlightenment period, right. in the fifteen and sixteen hundreds. You know, Rousseau and and Hooker and and uh, um, you know uh, John Locke and Burke and and different um, people like that that have contributed a tremendous amount to political philosophy and mm. and in fact if if you look behind the curtain of the u.s declaration of independence and and the u.s constitution you'll find all of those people that wrote extensively on uh, political theory and economics and, uh, and 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 human rights natural human rights back in the 1500s and the 1600s so you know guys like thomas jefferson and adams and Madison, they they were original thinkers in the ex, in in many great extents. However, they were building very heavily upon the men that had gone before them in right. uh, in in developing those ideas. So yeah. that's kind of been my journey. I've become a lot more libertarian, um, I think, than uh, I was when I was younger. Right, and uh, I mean, for an example. When I was a teenager, it was like drug dealers, shoot them all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and and uh, you know, because I kind of got that from. But not, but not the pharmacists, though. Not he those was drug pretty, dealers. Yeah, right? exactly. He was pretty cut and dried. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, now I'm like, you know what? If uh, if if someone wants to, you know, do drugs, I don't condone it. Uh, yeah. I would never do it. Um, but you know, if someone wants to partake, is it really any different than alcohol? uh yeah yeah well wow. and uh and you know so you know if uh, i think that to to dictate whether or not someone can do something like that in their life is it, i've come to believe that it's really a violation of of their right to choose right. as a human being and uh, it's not that we it's not all choices are good but if we're going to dictate people's right to choose that creates a slippery slope and and right. we've uh, we've seen where that takes us well, people have to be free to choose heaven or hell, right? I mean, that's kind of free will and it's like, yeah, 
you, you take that responsibility. As long as you're willing to bear the consequences, as long as I don't have to bear the consequences of your actions, who am I to stop? In fact, what right do I have? In fact, maybe it's even more deviant. Maybe what's even more deviant than snorting fentanyl is me trying to control what you put into your body. That might be the real deviant uh, behavior there. Uh, okay, so so you've done a, done a lot of reading and you, you've kind of formed your own political perspective. What what brought you to your current project? Maybe describe your current project and why you started it. Well, um, I, I, the hmm. when the Freedom Convoy started to roll across the country, and I've shared this on a number of podcasts, I was never more proud to be a Canadian. Hmm. Um, never. Um, I uh, I had tears in my eyes watching those trucks roll across the country and thousands of people lined up uh, along the highway. Um, I know that my wife and I, we participated in a number of convoys that went down to the Canada-US border here in the Okanagan and, and uh, we protested at the border on a number of occasions and it was, it was an amazing experience just to see people come together. And um, it gave us a sense of hope coming out of uh, a very, very dark time. And I would, I think history can argue what that is compared to, but I think it certainly has been one of the darker chapters in Canadian history. Definitely. Certainly, certainly uh, I believe the darkest chapter in terms of affecting the most amount of people. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm not going to minimize the darkness of, you know, the uh, oppression that's happened because of the Indian act. Yeah. Um, the internment of Ukrainians in the First World War and Japanese Canadians in the Second World War, those were horrible. And and uh, we can talk about all of them further because they do need more recognition. But from a, a pan-Canadian perspective, nothing has impacted the number of Canadians in the way that the last three years did. So for me, and I believe that for a lot of people, what was happening in Ottawa just gave people this tremendous amount of hope. It's just like, oh my gosh, mm. like is this like the equivalent of the of the um, the green spring in you know the Arab Spring or whatever, right? You know, um, where we're going to see just radical political change in Canada. Like, so I don't think anyone really knew what was going to happen with that, but it gave us hope, and hope is a very powerful thing, just like fear is very powerful. And uh, when the Freedom Convoy got jackbooted on the 14th of February by Justin Trudeau, uh, I was, like a lot of Canadians, I was very angry. Um, and I uh, I just started to write. I, I enjoy writing. Um, I, I, I write mostly just for myself, just so that I can articulate thoughts and, mm -hmm. and develop things. So the um, I started to write and I just started to kind of pour my thoughts and feelings out on paper. And what what came out was um, a lot of stuff that was in the background. It was from years of, of political thought right. and uh, and philosophical thought in terms of um, uh, the whole idea of natural rights and inalienable rights, um, a lot of um, thought and perspective on the very foundations, uh, you know, John Locke would refer to it as the beginning and end of civil government. Like, where does government come from? Mm. Like, how does government even begin? Right. And um, what are those roots and seeds? And so I, I was pretty angry and I started to write and I had, I've, I love the U.S. Declaration of Independence. I've read it many times. I think that other than the Bible, it's one of the most amazing documents that have ever been written, uh, especially if you can realize and understand all of the history behind it, the backstory that caused that document to appear. Um, I love the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And so I'd been reading it again after the Freedom Convoy was crushed. And I thought, you know what, I, I'm just going to start to write. And I, I, loved the, I loved the format that Jefferson had used in the Declaration. And I just started to kind of go, you know what? I just want to do the same thing. I want to, I want to build a reasoned case against our prime minister and our government. Mm. 
and a reason for um, uh, making commitments um, that are at the end of that declaration, the de the seven declarative statements. I wanted to I wanted to provide a case um, that was logical and coherent. I wanted to articulate an indictment against the government, and I wanted to uh, frame some things that I believe to be true, and then summarize that with the declaration itself at the very, very end. And, and so it took me about 13 months of revisions. I mean, most people have read version 59. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, and it was, um, I had, it was about three and a half thousand words at, at a version 56 or something like that. And I had met a fellow by the name of Dr. Salim Mansour. Um, mm. you, you may know of him and, yeah. Many of your uh, audience may be familiar with him. He's an amazing man, very, very uh, articulate and uh, knowledgeable. Um, speaks the truth, I believe, in uh, everything that I've heard him talk about. And I had met him briefly at an event in Kelowna in the spring of 2022 and um, had just a super short conversation with him. But I, I told my wife, Jolinda, I said, I need to talk to this guy. I'm not ready yet, but but I need to talk to him. I need to share with him at some point what I'm working on because he just seemed to be a fit for what I was doing. So I reached out to him in uh, February of this year and I sent him my manuscript and I just basically said, hey, you know, what do you think? And uh, he got back to me uh, immediately and he said, hey, this thing is this thing is amazing. And uh, it's timely. And so he, uh, he worked with me and gave me some edit suggestions. We, you know, he said to me, he said, Brandy said, you know, right now you have a chapter, but he said, I want you to, I want you to make this Canada's version of the Gettysburg address hmm. and uh, you need to trim it down. And right. so I had it down to a thousand words and then I brought it back up to about 1300. And that's what we, that's what we ended up publishing which is what you see, which is around 1300 words. Right. Right. Okay. And so your, your hope with this is to, to kind of inspire a conversation or like I've, I've noticed uh, at least one or two political parties have picked this up as kind of a project that they want to advance. What, what is the kind of hope with this document now? Uh, yeah, great question. So on a personal level, I, I want people to, to read the document and um, and if it resonates to them, and for most Canadians that have had any sort of a negative experience in the last three years, it does resonate to them. The, the feedback that we've had has been just nothing short of amazing from the comments that people have had. Um, but I want them to realize that, number one, on a personal level, that we've been lied to as Canadians. Uh, I refer to it as the great charade. Um, and, and we've been lied to in terms of our rights and freedoms in Canada. We've been told that, um, you know, we have rights and freedoms, but we actually don't um, because Parliament is supreme. And the last three years have shown us that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that articulate and that supposedly recognize our rights, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Um Interestingly enough, our constitution does not um, pay any recognition whatsoever to natural rights and the, right. and the uh, idea of inalienable rights that are not endowed by government. Yeah. Well, that, that might get in the way of governing or something like that, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, people, uh, I want people to understand that they've been lied to. Because um, the charter is a charade. It's not real. Um, I want people to realize that Parliament is supreme and uh, in all aspects of Canadian life. And a, a recent example of, of that is, um, you know, prior to the Internet, and, and a lot of your viewers are not really, um, you know, they, they weren't even around before the Internet, right? So prior to the Internet, the government, uh, the, the government, the, the parliament through the CRTC and various other pieces of legislation, they controlled the media in Canada. 
Um, they controlled Canadian content on radio, on television. They decided what cable news networks you were going to watch. Um, they were very involved in print media and what was available in Canada in terms of like magazines and newspapers and all that kind of stuff. It was very heavily controlled by government. The internet turned the, turned the, turned that tap wide open right. and it took control away from government and put it in the hands of individual Canadians who could watch whatever they wanted and get news wherever they wanted to and access whatever information they wanted to or to create. And so the exertion of uh, Bill C-11, which just was passed by the Senate uh, yesterday, I believe, which is the online censorship bill, it is simply, and it is censorship, but it is in a real sense, Parliament reasserting its authority over Canadians and flexing its muscle. And we're, and we're going back 25 years to before the internet Right. where the government is now again in control. Yeah, this is Bill C-11, right? Brent? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Bill C-11. Yeah, so we want real people to realize that Parliament is supreme, but that we as Canadians have inalienable rights. And when you go through the whereas section, it, it talks about that. Right. That, um, and, you know, it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing to talk about, but it's one that I don't believe requires a lot of uh, you know, intellectual bouncy castles to come to the conclusion. Right. I, I don't think that there's a, a person on earth anywhere who does not believe that they have the right to life. Mm. And it doesn't yeah. matter if you live in North Korea or China or Miami. Everyone has this inherent belief that, yeah, you know what? I have the right to life. Because otherwise, why would they be offended if someone, you know, took their life away? Right. And why would right, they be offended right. if someone took the life of their loved one? Yeah. Right. So there's this, and you know, and I, and I had a chat with some folks recently that were from Hong Kong and I asked them this question, where do you, do you, do you think you have the right to life? And they said, yeah. I said, where'd that come from? And they indicated to me that it's just, it's just something that, you know, hmm. and even though they grew up in Hong Kong, um, mostly under British rule, but they left there after the, the Chinese government took over. And, um, so everyone understands this. So if you have the right to life, and if you, you know, if you do want to do a lot of thinking about it, virtually every other right that you think you might have in your life emanates from emanates that from one that. human right. Sure. Well, how, how would you respond to what Knuckles 2761 has to say here? I don't like natural rights idea. It leads to classic argument. Life is a natural right. Therefore, doctors can't decline service. So I, I think he's saying here that it, it's um, it's kind of uh, saying that you have a positive obligation then to keep me alive or support my life if I have a right to life. How do you respond to that? Well, I think you need to take the doctor out of the equation, first of all, because whether a doctor, whether we have medicine or not, I mean, think back to, you know, just let's just think if we rolled the clock back 2000 years and we didn't have doctors, Right. Um, I, and I guess the, the question I would have for that person is, does he not believe that he has the right to life? So if yeah. he doesn't believe that he has the right to life, which, you know, there may be, maybe he's one person on earth that doesn't believe that he has that right. And if he doesn't believe that he has that right, then he should be completely happy if someone takes his life from him. Yeah. Or relatively indifferent he, or, or indifferent, or he shouldn't complain about it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there there has been this kind of, um, I guess, twisting or corruption of the idea of rights, right? Like that, rights can be understood in two different senses. There's positive rights, which are, you know, if you have the right to healthcare, that means that I, as a paramedic, am obligated to provide you with healthcare. I am obligated to, um, uh, you know, use my body and my resources and my time mm -hmm. to provide you with service, uh, no matter what. And that, that's obviously an incomprehensible right to have. I can't possibly do that for everyone. I can only do it for one person and I can only yeah. do it when I've had enough sleep. And I kind of like to have a paycheck. So when I've had a paycheck and different yeah. things like that, that's yeah. a positive obligation. Yeah. But usually um, when we talk about rights um, in terms of constitutions or you know, when we talk about liberty or libertarianism, what we're talking about is negative rights. In other words, 
thou shalt not infringe, thou shalt not, right? They're, they're shall nots. In other words, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. My my right to swing my fist stops short of your nose, um, that sort of thing. So So when we say we have a right to life, what we're essentially saying is you don't have the right to take my life, nor do you, nor do you, nor do you, nor does anyone else. The only person that might have the right to take my life is me. But that, 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 that is, that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, a, I think that, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know if you've ever read the UN declaration of human rights, but it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting document, but I think it's abysmally written. Right. Um, yeah. There's a lot of positive assumptions in there, right? That, well, that... It, it, they, um, from, I guess I kind of break rights down into, uh, you know, either a natural right that is universal to every human being. Right. Um, if, if a right is not universal to every human being, I would not consider it to be a natural right, but they, they have in there, they have a, a million things that I, well, that's an exaggeration, but, um, and I want to be truthful. So it's not a million things, but, um, they have things in there that I would consider to be not natural rights, but legal rights. Mm. Right. Or, you know, like there's a difference between, you know, a group of people coming together, uh, in community and, um, making a decision that, okay, so as a community, this is something that we are going to recognize universally for a common decision. And that may be, we're going to, we're going to create a healthcare system and we're going to, uh, we're going to make it accessible to everybody. Yeah. It's not necessarily a universal human right that is a natural right, but it's a decision that we've made as a community to create a benefit that people can access under certain conditions or whatever. So I think that is, I think there's a, a big discussion on both sides of that, but my going back to my, well, but, but from my perspective, that requires a positive obligation from people, right? Like healthcare just doesn't emerge out of the ether. Someone mm -hmm. actually has to provide it. Someone has to pay for it. Exactly. So who, if you have the right to healthcare, um, then who is obligated to pay for that? Who is obligated to provide it? Who is the slave here, right? And yeah, is well, that a violation of rights? Uh, like I would never the right say to bodily, that. Right. Yeah, and, and I would never say that the right to healthcare is a universal human right. Right. I think I think healthcare is a is a privilege. Sure. It's a it's a it's a service that's provided within a within an an advanced civilization. But I don't believe that healthcare is a right. And we yeah. we've been told that there's lots of things that are a right. And they and and they've become a social right if you put that in parenthesis, but I don't right. believe that uh, healthcare is a is a natural right any more than education is. Right. Um, well, my uh, you know my kind of I guess intellectual um, uh, I don't know what you say influence Murray Rothbard would say that all human rights are property rights essentially. So I have a basically a property right in my body mm -hmm. myself and the things that I appropriate from nature or, or freely trade for the things, those things are, are mine. And, and he, you know, so even free speech, for example, is simply a property, right? In other words, you you can't touch me or my property for the words I'm saying. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that same right allows me, if you say words, I don't like at my kitchen table about my wife on her birthday, I can kick your ass out. You're, you're trespassing, right? So, so that's <laughs> yeah. a, that same property right that lets me kick you out of my house for the words that come out of your mouth. Yep. Allow me to say whatever I want in the public square or on my yep. own property. So that's kind of how Murray Rothbard. And yeah. to, to me, that's the simplest way to I, think I like about that. rights. It's, yeah, I, I like that for sure. So you know the you know if you want to just to circle back to one of your previous questions in terms of kind of the the declaration. Um. It's its ultimate purpose is to, uh, well, I, on the personal side, again, if you go to the declarative statements, I wanted to give people an opportunity to go, hey, I can I can take these declarative statements and I can draw a line in the sand for myself. Right. Right. Because I can say I am not going to comply. There's power in saying those words or reading those words from a personal perspective. If you believe that you you don't want to comply and it's not a coercive document but for people that it resonates with you know what i'm not going to comply right with any reg regulation mandate directive if i feel it's going to violate my 
my inalienable rights as a Canadian and a human being. So that's kind of that part of it. And the in the you know politically, on on the bigger scope, it's about uh, a dream to create a completely new constitution for Canada, mm. uh, a constitution that's drafted outside of the realm of political parties and government. Right. By the people create, almost say eh? by, by the people. And, <laughs> and, and we've actually started that process. We've, we've actually got, got a, got a, a draft preamble oh, nice. uh, to a constitution and we're working on the, on the uh, declaration of, of rights, right. which will form the next portion. And, and by the way, uh, audience, if you want to read this declaration, uh, the, the link to it is in the show notes down below, uh, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Rumble, that link is down there. So, so feel free to pop that up. Like, uh, Brenton said, it's about 1300 words. Why don't we actually, Brent, why don't we get you to, to read that document and, and let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, you can. can pull it up if, here. If you'd like me to read it, for sure. Um, yeah, well, let me ask you this. How long do you think it would take to read it? 1,300 uh, words? It'll, it'll take uh, about, uh, I don't know, seven, eight minutes. Something like okay, that. well, let's let's do it. That's not too long. Um, I think my audience has that attention span. We can do it, guys, right? Yeah. This is, this is for the future of Canada. Here's <laughs> what I love, Brent. Like, uh, you know, I've been a liberty activist to like leader of the libertarian party. You know, this is super important to me. I, I cashed in my pension even to run as leader of the libertarian party. I knew I wasn't going to get many votes. I wanted to get the message out there, right? I'm banging my head against the wall, looking for people to, to shake their fist at government and like stand, hold the line and stand up to the, the totalitarianism that I have seen going on for my whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Income tax, what's that? Central banks, come on, all these regulations. I can't have lawn darts, can't have a baby walker. I mean, yeah. all these things make me absolutely nuts. But yeah. I'm not gonna start a revolution by myself. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, mm -hmm. you know, lead the charge. So what I love is that Justin Trudeau has actually made more libertarians in the past two years than I could have ever hoped to make as a liberty activist for the last 10. It actually makes that me kind of so jealous. True. That is so true. But uh, and so and, and this is another thing that's emerged from it, and this is what's got me so excited. So uh go ahead uh and and um, if you wouldn't mind reading that, I'll pop it up on the screen here for you guys uh, to, to read along with as well. Sure. So uh, this is, it's called the True North Declaration, March 15th, 2023. This is the unanimous declaration of the True North, Canada's Freedom Nation. Recent events in our nation's history have confirmed to citizens from coast to coast to coast that Canada is broken. Since Confederation, most Canadians believed that government respected our God-given rights and freedoms and that the tyranny which reigned in faraway places would never find its way to our shores. But if we are truthful in recollecting our history, over the past 30 years there have been many signs and many warnings, a little loss of freedom here and a little less of liberty there, and all the while the true North being bullied and coddled into the cage of a totalitarian state in the making. The Freedom Convoy was the last canary in the coal mine. The thousands who joined in Ottawa asking our Prime Minister to lift mandates that abridged their rights and freedoms were no fringe minority. They were instead true patriots, representing millions of Canadians who'd been witnessing the true North strong and free being toppled like a statue and replaced with a pillar of tyranny and despotism. For generations, it was simply assumed that our rights and freedoms were protected in our Constitution. But sadly, this assumption was mistaken since, in fact, Canadians have been subject to a great charade. This charade masked the truth that government considers our natural rights and liberties not inalienable, but merely privileges granted by Parliament under the Crown that can readily be withdrawn at the whim of government. Indeed, our Bill of Rights from 1960 recognized many liberties, but could be amended or repealed by Parliament at any time, proving that the rights purportedly recognized in the Bill were in fact privileges and not rights at all. This truth was confirmed when Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau invoked the War Measures Act in 1970 and suspended the rights and freedoms of Canadians. While our Bill of Rights had a brief pretense of liberty, it birthed the Charter of Rights and Freedoms entrenched in our Constitution Act of 1982 
to safeguard our liberties from the whims of Parliament. The charade of Canadian liberty ended when the Freedom Convoy 2022 was bludgeoned by Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act. His use of violence to crush the Freedom Convoy proved yet again that Parliament is sovereign and that as with our Bill of Rights, the Charter is simply political slate of hand. While the Charter proclaims our rights and freedoms, Sections 1 and 33 guarantee the supremacy of Parliament to limit those freedoms as government determines, confirming that the Charter is about privileges, not rights. And thus, the fundamental flaw in our Constitution lies exposed. Drafted by Great Britain to ensure Parliament's sovereignty over Canadians and to serve the interests of the British Empire, it contains no recognition to the inalienable rights of Canadians. Rather, a cursory look to the past proves that for generations, government has used the Constitution to abuse Canadians. The Indian Act, the internment of Ukrainian Canadians during World War I, the internment of Japanese Canadians during World War II, forced sterilizations, the MK Ultra experiments, the crow's nest freight rates, the National Energy Program, ideologically driven gun control, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's campaign to destroy the natural resource economies of Western Canada. Recent examples of continued abuses by government against the people of Canada include closing our economies, prohibiting us from tending to loved ones who are sick or dying, suspending the order of parliament, segregating us with vaccine mandates and passports, restricting our travel within Canada, coercing us into taking experimental vaccines against our will, firing and fining us for refusing to comply with COVID mandates, refusing to acknowledge adverse vaccine effects and injury, censoring free speech regarding vaccines, COVID treatment and policy, punishment of healthcare professionals for voicing concerns regarding vaccine side effects and treatment options, invoking the Emergencies Act to crush illegal protest with violence, taking political prisoners such as Pastor Arter Pulowski, Tamara Leach and Pat King, and the boys from Coots. Freezing bank accounts of Canadians because they supported the Freedom Convoy, stripping our rights to freely own and use arms, censoring free speech, the internet, and criminalizing communication, making lawful medically-assisted suicide rather than supporting people in need, undermining our national sovereignty by supporting illegal immigration and the globalist agendas of the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, and the World Health Organization, tacitly supporting the efforts and ambitions of the Communist Party of China, creating massive debt, high inflation, and high interest rates, destroying our natural resource and agricultural economies, imposing massive carbon taxes, pursuing total control over our lives, including what we drive, what we eat, what jobs we will have, and how we will adapt in their future imagined green economy imposition of a digital currency and digital ID to exert complete control over the social, economic, and political lives of all Canadians. It is abundantly clear that our Constitution does not recognize our inalienable rights. What instead Canadians suffer is the tyranny of Parliament that has the supremacy to suspend those rights, to appoint judges biased in support of Parliament's discretion over charters' rights and freedoms, and enable federal usurpation of provincial jurisdictions, continue to repress First Nations under the Indian Act, and impose all Canadians to the lies, deceptions, and corruptions of politicians and their supporting caste of bureaucrats. As such, we Canadians vow to exercise our natural duty and moral obligation to choose the path taken by millions of patriots before us who stood for freedom in the face of tyranny. From Bodacia fighting to free her people from Roman rule over Britannia in 60 AD, the rebel barons who forced King John of England to sign the Magna Carta at Runnymede in 1215, our honoured soldiers storming, storming Juno Beach, Normandy in June 1944, the small protests against the violation of our rights with mask and vaccine mandates that began in our streets in 2020, to the Freedom Convoy 2022 that sought redress in our nation's capital. Therefore, 
Whereas all people are created equally with naturally endowed inalienable rights and liberties, and whereas the natural authority for the creation and legitimate operation of civil government are derived from the people, and whereas we believe that the fundamental objective of government is to preserve and enlarge the freedom of Canadians through the vigorous defense and protection of our naturally endowed rights, and whereas we believe that provinces and territories must have distinct and independent constitutions guaranteeing their greatest sovereignty within a confederation, and whereas we desire a constitution that will unite all Canadians in a commonwealth of freedom, equality, and purpose that reserves sovereignty to the Canadian people, where all levels of government are constrained by established limits, clearly defined separation of powers, and separate representation for the peoples and regions of the nation. Therefore, we declare... We are the true north, Canada's freedom nation, and we will not surrender Canada to the political elites and their post-nationalist agenda. We believe all people are created equally in the image of God with inalienable rights and liberties, including the right to life, liberty, and personal property. We believe in the power of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We will not surrender our God-given rights to any government and would rather die as free people standing bravely in the face of tyranny than live as serfs beholden to a dictator such as Justin Trudeau. We will hold the line and not comply with any law, order, regulation, mandate, or directive from government that infringes on our inalienable rights and liberties. We will freely exercise our inalienable rights and freedoms, including the right to free speech, the right to self-defense, the right to privacy, the right to practice our faith, the right to freely associate, and the right to personal property. We possess the right of self-determination, and from this strength we will organize a Congress of Canadians from coast to coast to coast to frame a new constitution for the nation under which sovereign provinces can unite in a federation that will guarantee the rights and liberties of the true North strong and free to prosper and to endure with the grace and blessings of God. Beautiful. Love it. Well, thank you so much for writing that. And, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that this will inspire some people and eventually lead to, you know, a, a chat about the Constitution. Now, you know, when, once we get a Constitution, our, our work is still ahead of us. You know, the, the U.S. in many ways had one of the best constitutions ever written. It's now one of the biggest, most pervasive imperialist governments the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, constitution alone might not be enough to, to hold chain government down. It seems like government always finds a way to, to escape those, those chains. What, what, what do you think is the key to, uh, I guess, keeping a liberty? Well, I think, you, you know, you raise an incredibly sobering point. Um, and it's one that I wrestle with a lot. I think that, um, you know, the, the, the framers of the U.S. Constitution, they, they said it well in their preamble that they were pursuing to create a more perfect union. And, you know, they, they, the, the folks who, who wrote the U.S. Constitution, I mean, it was, it was a pretty small group of people that were involved. Most of, most of the Constitution was actually drafted by, by James Madison, I believe. But... Um, all of them were, um, all the key players were well-educated in British law and, and, and the, the system of British Parliament because that's where they'd been trained. I mean, they, the, the American colonies were British colonies and they knew everything. They, they knew the ins and outs of British Parliament and parliamentary procedure just like we do here in Canada. And they took everything that they didn't like and that was not working and they tried to they tried to make something that was the best that they could to address the problems that they saw mm. and you see this you know in their in their bill of rights which we you know we talk about as their their uh, their amendments to their constitution primarily have been the bill of rights um but throughout that and i think in our process there's some you know great templates like um you know i've been reading 
again, a, a whole pile of U.S. state constitutions, which if you take the Constitution of Massachusetts, for example, which John Adams wrote, um, that was the first constitution of its kind ratified in, in the, the world. It's the oldest continuously used written constitution on earth, uh, 1780. So that was put in place eight years before the American constitution that we currently have right. was, was ratified. But I think to your question, you know, I, I think like any problem that you're going to solve, you identify the things that you need to address and then create a mechanism um, to solve it or prevent yeah. it. So there's a lot of things that I don't think the founding fathers, you know, the people that, that signed off on the U S constitution, there's lots of things that they never saw coming. Yeah. Right. And so I think, you well, know, yeah, I think one of the things, you know, that they maybe never saw coming is how kind of lackadaisical culture gets. Right. I mean, you know, that, that old meme of hard men create good times, good times, create soft men, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true. I, I'd like to think we could get off that repeating treadmill because if I'm a hard man, why why do I want to create good times anymore? It's just mm -hmm. going to create soft men who are going to make things shitty. But yeah. uh, but I mean, that's, uh, that's true. You, you know, that's but true. but um, you know, for a while I thought you know because if you you know I, I think of that Lysander Spooner quote about the U.S. Constitution. I think I can't remember when he I don't know it was in the 1800s or early 1900s. But he basically said either the Constitution has authorized this kind of um, uh, tyranny or it has been powerless to stop. But either either way, it's basically as good as toilet paper. I, I'm butchering his quote, but it was something yeah. like that. Um, and, and so I thought, well, maybe that maybe the second half of that. I mean, you have to have that Constitution kind of restraining it and or articulating that restraint. But then you also have to have a strong will from the people, and that requires an engaged kind of population that that is um not letting government get away with it is holding it to the constitution and but instead what seems to happen whenever you have a government form is there people look for freebies they look for free riders they look to outsource their personal responsibility in any way they can to the government and and you know they they do it in the name of you know, we need to save lives or we need to prevent death or there's a pandemic coming or you, you know you could think of a thousand different emergencies or excuses that that are legitimate sounding let's say and 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 i mean well, it takes an incredible amount of um self-knowledge and and perception to ward against those things as a population yeah well i think you, you touch on you know i think it's the the achilles heels the achilles heel in in everything seems to be um you know who manages the public purse right right and uh governments i mean it didn't take very long as soon as like the United States actually is on its second constitution. They had a constitution um, after they uh, won the war with um, Britain and they, they had a peace settlement. Um, but it, it was found to not be everything that uh, everyone wanted it to be in terms of commerce and trade. And there was some federalist kind of things. And so if you, if you read the federalist papers that were, um, that were written um, prior to the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. That was a, an effort by a number of writers to convince people that this new constitution was going to be a better thing for America. And I think in, in, uh, in, in looking at it, I mean, it certainly has been. It's, a, it's produced probably arguably the, the greatest economic nation on earth, although it's, I think that's in decline as we're seeing now, but I think that the lesson that I've taken away from it is that in the division of powers in government, somehow there needs to be another layer that is another division. And I haven't quite been able to wrap my head around it, but the other yeah. division I believe needs to be around money. Hmm. The, the people that are, um, you, if, if you have a, and our country's no different when politicians have the public purse, they want to throw money around to get reelected. Right. They buy votes and we've created this culture of, you know, we're going to turn this, we're going to create a social program and now it's your right to have that. And now we got to feed you more of it. And, and it's a never ending thing. Right. And uh, somehow there needs to be another limit on government when it comes to spending money. Hmm. And I think that's a great, that's yeah. a great conversation for, for us to engage in.
Yeah. Like, is it abolishing the central bank? Is it going to a free market of banks? Is it? Yes. Yeah. What, what exactly is it? But you, but you, you can't know, have everyone in, you can't have all the politicians just shelling out everyone else's right. shelling out money because that is a direct violation of, of everyone's right to personal property. Yes. Because, you know, well, they're, they're, they're robbing your buying power by printing, they just pillage turning it, on the printing know. press. Right. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever read the, have you ever read the speech that Davy Crockett gave to the Congress it's before he went to the Alamo where he died. No. Um, it's called, it's not yours to give. Huh. And okay. uh, he had, he gave a, he gave this speech in Congress in response to a, a bill that was put into Congress where, where uh, the people in Congress wanted to, and I don't know which party it was, but there was a bill on the floor to uh, take public money and uh, pay for all the damage that had been done to a, a large fire that had ripped through Georgetown. And mm. so they wanted to take public money and right. pay for all the damage that had been done to all the, these people's houses. And, and it's unfortunate. They were, you know, people's homes that burned, burned down and they yeah. were stepping in and going, you know what, we need to do something. And well, they're going to use taxpayer funds to, he argued that, you know what, it's not your money to give. Right. And if you want to donate to uh, that cause, then write a check yourself because you're, you're taking money from the farmer, you know, in some other part of the country that, you know, he's having just as much hardship and yeah, other people yeah. are having trouble and you just yeah. can't, you can't pick and choose and take other people's money like that. And he yeah. gave a very compelling argument. And I, I've, I've given copies of it to a number of elected officials and, and wow. I don't think it's uh, I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to pull that up because actually yeah. one of the, one of my kind of side projects, I'm a firefighter by trade and, and so one of my dreams, you know, that I've slowly been working out over the years is, is building up. Uh, I want to write a book about um, how, how government, how firefighting can be done outside the state, let's say, and mm -hmm. uh, how, you know, historically it was. And in fact, you know, the, the London fires, the great fire of London, the conflagration that happened there up until that point, it had been primarily done by insurance companies uh, trying to do it. But that, that giant conflagration was obviously very expensive. For insurance companies and and they wanted to out you know basically outsource their responsibility to government again and and you see how here how how government and big government kind of grows right it's like okay we we, we don't want to be responsible for our failures at extinguishing preventing preventing and extinguishing these fires we want to outsource that to, to the, the city to, of london and to the taxpayers they, they mm -hmm. you guys should run the fire brigade and have that as your like city thing and so, you know, again, what, what I would argue is that fire services should probably be managed or run by, by, um, uh, something like an insurance company who actually has an incentive to make sure fires never happen and make sure they're effectively put out when they do happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they've been outsourced to the state. And so that's another thing I could put in there, uh, that, that Davy Crockett, uh, it's a good point because that's exactly you know again the same type of idea yeah. uh, in there. You know, one of the things and I'll get your thought on. Like, I, I should probably wrap up here pretty quickly. We've been going almost an hour, but I often think you know. I remember my daughter getting in trouble in Catholic school. I can't remember why, but she basically she was pointing out how she's worried that you know 200 years in the future people are going to be laughing at her beliefs the same way her class was laughing at the aztecs in their harvest you know cutting human hearts out and doing human sacrifice mm -hmm. i i sometimes think about that and i wonder okay 200 years from now like 200 years ago we thought most of the world thought slavery was perfectly fine there was no moral progress let's say there was just the natural order of things kind of like how we see the state right now. And I'm wondering if 200 years in the future, I often kind of fantasize what it'll be that that people 200 years from now look back on at this time and think, well, that was just like, what were they, barbarians? What were they thinking? And I, sometimes I think, well, maybe it's government itself that is the barbaric enterprise. I mean, it, here it is, a monopoly on violence. It has a mandate to use violence. It, it All these governments come into existence primarily through conquest and plunder. Like, I, I don't know... I can't think of too many that have emerged peacefully from just some sort of self-governing agreement among peace among the people. It's usually a group of elite that that rile up, you know, conquest and plunder. But it, the, I, some things that give me hope, or, or maybe it's a technological solution. You know, so for example, I know some 
fellas that are doing this thing called seasteading, Patrick Friedman. He's actually Milton Friedman's grandson. And he's got this organization called the Seasteading Organization. They're trying to build offshore platforms. The idea is you create this floating city that does whatever mines seaweed or, you know, there's all sorts of or, or does offshore medical research uh, away from, you know, regulation and different things like that. Drill for oil. Drill for oil. There you go. Whatever. <laughs> but they, they do. But then you you have a bunch of other seasteaders pulling up and docking and kind of forming a community. Right. And. And the originator of that community kind of sets the rules and you are agreeing explicitly to those rules. There's essentially a contract that would occur where you're agreed to rules. You maybe agree to pay a, an annual fee for upgrade, upkeep of infrastructure that holds the community together or whatever. Um, and, and there's immediate access to justice if a contract is breached one way or the other, either by the resident or the so-called government. Um, that's not, but I, you know, and, and I, there's also some people I know that are are experimenting with private cities, you know. So again, there's an explicit contract with the city owner who owns the streets, the infrastructure, the parks, sometimes the fire department. There's gar certain guarantees that are made, like your garbage is going to be picked up, your potholes are going to be filled, and the uh, the guarantee on the other side is you'll abide by architectural controls and you'll you'll pay your annual fees. They don't call them taxes because they're not coercive because you're voluntarily agreeing to them. But there's an explicit contract it's not this kind of airy fairy social contract that we're all told about that we all signed on to by virtue of being spit out of our mother's birth canals in a particular geography it's an actual explicit contract um and, and i sometimes wonder if that's that's the way to go or, or eventually i mean if that's going to be the technology that takes us to the next next level where we can actually have enforceable contracts with what we might call a government or the, the dispute resolution organization or the, the third party that we, we contract with to underwrite our, our economic and relational transactions in a society. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about what I've said? Is it all sound like complete utter nonsense to you? Or? You know what? Hey, um, I don't think any of it sounds like nonsense because I, I think that, you know, the thing that I love about this conversation is that, I've met someone that's, you know, thinking about things that are, uh, um, you know, topics and problems that most people don't think are solvable. Right. And, and we need more people that can believe that you can land a man on the moon. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? absolutely. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I think, um, I don't think anything, I don't think those things are crazy. I think, I think we need to come up with all sorts of potential solutions and debate them. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I think, and, and have the best ideas win, you know, my, my, my personal foundational pieces, um, you know, to, to be in a, I hope that, you know, one day Canadians can live in a country, uh, maybe it's not even called Canada, but that, that people in Canada can live in a country where the, the people of the country are sovereign over parliament or, mm -hmm the Republic, whatever form of government is chosen. But I believe that the people need to be sovereign. People need to be sovereign over everything ultimately. And that includes even the Supreme courts that you put in a nation. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, you know, when the Supreme court, you know, makes bad decisions that are not supported by the population of the country, the, that, that should be overridden because the people need to be Supreme. Um, and, and, I, and I'd love for Canadians to live in a country where their, you know, their natural rights, um, that everyone can agree to, or most people can agree, Hey, you know what, these are, here's a set of natural rights that seem reasonable and, uh, and that they are, that they are, uh, inviolable, they're inalienable and, uh, and that our agreement to come together, uh, to, to have government, to, protect and enlarge those freedoms. Um, uh, I think that that's a, it's a, it's a dream. And I think that it's a dream worth having. It's a, it's a discussion that is uh, anathema to government, mm. anathema to the legal profession. And um, it's not going to be uh, um well accepted or encouraged by anyone in political power on a federal level 
there are some provincial political parties that are very interested in this. The Buffalo Party, Saskatchewan being one of them. Right. Um, they they recently uh, actually adopted it formally at their convention as part of their party policy. There's um, a couple of other provincial parties that are interested in doing the same kind of a thing. And so we're going to be working with them. We're going to be working with uh, to help draft an actual constitution for the province of Saskatchewan so that the residents there can see what what that might look like for them. Awesome. Um, obviously, it's it doesn't mean anything because it's not part of our legal system. But um, for people to for people who have never seen an electric car before, here's an electric car. And right, right. for people that have never seen a, a what a provincial constitution might look like and and what the implications of that be, here it is. Right. What do you think? Um, so well, and and you know what what you've done here just to kind of close things out is you, you've provided a, a vision, a picture, some inspiration for people to glom onto, you know, all the work you put into this declaration. I thank you very much for doing it because it gives us a piece to, um, to reflect on, to, to uh, promote, to, to rally around that, that says, yes, this is, this is the thing that has been in my heart and in my brain that I've been trying to say that I haven't had the words and Brenton here has put it into words. He spent the time and and he's done exactly what I do. So Brenton, <laughs> thank you so much for, for doing what you've done. Um, and you. I, I love what you said about, you know, no one believed, you know, until one person believed we could land on the moon, it wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. Well, people are believing, starting to believe. People are starting to believe and it's thanks to, to the work of, of people like you. So thank you very much for all the work you put into it. And, and thanks for joining us here on the Tim Moen Show tonight. Thank you, uh, Tim, for having me, and I, I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to a future conversation. Absolutely. Uh, audience, make sure you you subscribe to, uh, on my Locals page. Go to my Substack, Tim Moen. All the links are in, in the show notes. I uh, appreciate any support you can give me to keep this conversation going, to keep, keep this uh, show on the road, to bring you more important guests like Brenton here. So thank you very much. Have a great night.